Welcome back, everybody, to Bill's Chat, a pro football podcast. This is Josh. With me tonight, as always, is Luca. Luca, how's it going tonight? It's going good. Exciting times here. You know, over this past weekend, obviously, we hit camp, and then we're about to wrap up the Rivals Watch series we've been doing. Uh, I'm happy to be sitting here talking with you again. We have a lot to get into. This offseason flew by. We had free agency and the draft, and then there was that summer period where we were trying to come up with topics to talk about every week. And now it's almost like, how are we going to cram all of this into one show? But have no fear. We will find a way to do that. Luca did mention what the outline is tonight. We are going to complete our Rivals Watch series. We're going to talk about the AFC East, the Patriots, the Dolphins, the Jets. But we're also well aware that the Bills opened training camp this week on Sunday. And this is a Bills chat podcast. So we are obviously going to start with where our bread is buttered, and that is with the Buffalo Bills. And Luca, injuries were the story to start camp as Tredavious White was announced to be starting camp on the physically unable to perform list, the pup list. Also, backup guard Ike Botker and backup interior defensive lineman Eli Anku also on the pup list. Um, Botker did blow out his Achilles in that New England game in December. No surprise there. And then uh, Eli Anku, not really sure what he's dealing with, but what the way the pup list works is these guys have until August 24th to be activated or else they will be required to miss the first four games of the regular season. For players like Botker and Anku, that's actually advantageous to the Bills if it's at least close that they could or could not play because it essentially extends the Bills roster by two extra spots for four games into the regular season where they can either A, still have the rights to Botker and Anku while still having a full 53-man roster, or B, have the rights to people that are on a roster bubble at those positions and, again, having Botker and Anku's rights. Now, with a superstar like Tredavious White, who's an all-pro cornerback, who is very vital to the team, you're not worried about that detail. But it is interesting to me that Dr. David Chow, Pro Football Doc, who is just excellent, you should follow him on Twitter if you're not, did predict that he doesn't expect Tredavious White to be ready for the start of the regular season. I don't think any of us, Luca, either of us, expected Tredavious White to be ready for the opening of training camp. I would say that we probably were holding out hope and probably still are that he'll be ready for week one. But I would say that at this point in time, the Bills have to start preparing like Tredavious White is not going to be ready to roll when the Bills head to Los Angeles week one to take on the Rams. And Leslie Frazier even said as much in his press conference this week that they have to approach this like they're not going to have Tredavious White. And then if he's ready, it's almost like a bonus. And then he mentioned names that you would expect. Um, He mentioned Kyrie Elam. He mentioned Dane Jackson. He also mentioned Tim Harris, which is a name that I don't think a lot of Bills fans are familiar with, but it's interesting that his name come up as a boundary cornerback that would be there to fill in for Tredavious White. Cam Lewis is a guy that's been getting a lot of praise from people out there covering camp. Nick McLeod's been playing well, but Luca, I think the bigger story here is that the Bills potentially are looking at opening up the season without their all pro cornerback. Yeah. And I know you said, you know, we were holding on hope, which we are still that uh, Trey White could be there week one. Um, but realistically, being when he suffered the injury that he did, um, it, it was it's a hope more than an expectation, of course. And I I feel like it's not too much of a surprise. And as you said, definitely coming into camp, not the biggest of surprise. 
Um, but it's not too much of a surprise, even that the reality is he may not be ready to go week one. And he he could potentially miss those first four games, being that, you know, if they don't activate him uh, by August 24th, that is the reality of it. Um, what I what I found interesting was, as you mentioned, those names were brought up, you know, when it comes to Kyer Elam, Dane Jackson, and then also even um, the third corner that name Tim is Harris. Tim Harris, thank you very much. Um, I was like, those names were brought up, and that kind of brought this sense of, you know, as comfortable as you can be with the gentlemen that are in the room right now at that position to step up in that need that may be those first four weeks or more or less, whatever it may be, depending on the situation, um, just because, and I'm sure you'll discuss this more, you know, the reality is Trey White not, might not be valuable or available, I should say, he is definitely valuable. He is might not be available, but it's not exactly about weeks one and two for us. You know, there's there's definitely a future site to this, um, and I'm sure you'll go to more length on that. But ultimately, I think there, Leslie Frazier and all of them will definitely have a bit of a sense of comfortability and acceptance that is... They have the guys they are, they, they've been dealt the cards they have, and they're going to get the best out of whatever they have in front of them. And unfortunately, the early slate is what you could define as the more difficult slate for the Bills. But in reality, every week's difficult. You got to do what you got to do. And this is a team that we pride ourselves on our depth. And maybe at corner, it's going to be tested a little bit more early on in the season, unfortunately. We wish Trey to come back as soon as he can, but it'll be an interesting thing to watch. And I think it's a good you know, thing to start off this new segment with. And there's a few moving parts here. Joe Hayden is a name that Von Miller and Stefan Diggs have been vocal about trying to recruit to Buffalo. But what we haven't heard is any actual interest from the Bills in Joe Hayden. Now, the Bills, as reported today by Sal Capaccio of WGR, really only have about $5 million in cap space. And that's for a team that is potentially looking to get something done with Jordan Poyer, which we'll get into in a little bit. Maybe getting something done with a Dawson Knox or a Tremaine Edmonds or an Ed Oliver before the season starts. And you know Brandon Bean always likes to have a little money off to the side in case something happens. So despite the fact that it looks like the Bills could start the season a bit shorthanded at cornerback, I am not getting the feeling right now, Luca, that Joe Hayden is in their immediate plans. And I would say he may not even come into the conversation until maybe another injury would happen at the position. But to piggyback on what you said about the Bills having a long view here, it's important to remember, this is a team with championship aspirations. And to get to the championship, you definitely would like to have the one seed. We all understand that, that a team like the Bills getting a bye and having playoff games go through Buffalo would be a much better path to get to that ultimate goal, which is to get to the Super Bowl. So having Tredavious White not available for a handful of games would, yes, lessen your chances of winning the game. By how much, that's debatable. Uh, but to me, the way the Bills are built with what we think is going to be a very high-end pass rush with two of the best safeties in the entire league back there, with a first-round cornerback on one side in Kair Elam, with one of the top nickelbacks in the entire league in Teron Johnson and two linebackers who make a lot of money and are praised all the time for their coverage. I think the bills are insulated to survive a stretch without an elite high end, all pro cornerback. 
And to me, the worst case scenario in this entire situation is if you were to rush Tredavious White back and potentially have him suffer a setback. And then instead of assuming he's going to be ready to roll by December and then January in the money games, he's not ever up to 100% this entire year. And you never get that Tredavious White you were expecting. To me, it has to be your eye has to be on the end game here. And that's get into the tournament and be as healthy as possible. And if that means that you have to wait a little bit to unleash Tredavious White this season, so be it. To me, it's a small price to pay to ensure that your all-pro cornerback is ready to roll. And I think the Bills have to trust Sean McDermott and Leslie Frazier to do what they have done time after time after time in Buffalo, and that is coach up defensive backs to be ready to take over for Tredavious White if he cannot start the season. Another starter, Luca who started the season on an injured list, a different injured list, the NFI non-football injury list, is starting left guard, left left guard Roger Saffold. He was in a car accident and does have some rib injuries. Brandon Bean said that he's having a hard time even sleeping because of the, the pain he's feeling. Bean did say in his press conference, he does anticipate that Roger Saffold will be back in time for the regular season, but they would not put a time frame on when he's going to be able to start practicing. So to me, this right now is not a huge cause for concern. It doesn't sound like it's something that the Bills are at least worried is going to carry into the regular season. But I also want to point out, he is the starting left guard on this team. He's expected to be an upgrade over what the Bills had their last season. And the Bills start the season off with Aaron Donald, Jeffrey Simmons, and Christian Wilkins the first three weeks of the season. If Roger Saffold is either A, not on the field, or B, on the field, but not 100%, that is a very less than ideal situation for the Bills when you're looking at those particular matchups. Luca, I'm personally going to choose not to worry about the Roger Saffold situation until we turn the calendar into August and maybe even get to the middle of August. And if he's still not practicing, then my worry meter will start to rise. Right now, it's just something I'm going to keep an eye on and not overly panic about. And honestly, a veteran uh, with his pedigree and his experience missing the first couple of weeks of training camp may not be the worst thing in the world. Where do you sit on the Roger Saffold news? I'm pretty much there with you. Keeping an eye is a great way to put it. Um, you just kind of want to, it's something of note. It's definitely something of note. You know, injuries are injuries, concerns are concerns. You know, the severity of it is something that, as you just discussed, may not seem on the surface at this point to be too severe. Um, but it's something to note. It's something to kind of keep an eye on, as you put it, and the best way to describe it, because as you also mentioned, come August, we get into, you know, the meat of August, the middle of it all. If if he's still sitting there hurt and he hasn't really even dressed up and he hasn't really been out there to kind of work out, then it's starting to worry a little bit because as you brought up early on, the interior is going to be very important with the success of this offense and being able to keep dominant players from those interior areas away from Josh Allen and everything going on. Um, you would like Saffold to be there and ready to go. Yeah, I'm not I'm not looking at it as a concern when it comes to being ready when it comes to uh, just an understanding of the game and whatnot. He, he's a veteran. I think, you know, as soon as he's healthy, 
he's going to be fine. He doesn't need these, you know, training camp programs to kind of get himself going. He probably needs to stretch his legs a bit and make sure he's a little active kind of to get in game shape, we'll call it. But the only way to get in game shape is to really play games and you have to be available for those. So when it comes to, you know, him being healthy, hopefully by mid-August, he's there. He's able to kind of get a little practice and try to get in game shape. And then come week one, everything's good. As you said, Bean expects him to be there for week one. That makes me feel comfortable about the situation. So I'm just going to keep an eye on it. I know you just said you're going to keep an eye on it. And that's kind of where to leave it from here. We'll circle back if for some reason come, you know, August 10th, 15th, whatever it may be, he still hasn't even like kind of gotten out there and dressed up. Then maybe we got to like, you know, have some sort of level of concern there. But overall, at this point, it's something of note moving on everything like that. I I'm not trying to dwell on little things like that at this point in time, for sure. To take advantage of the roster spot vacated by Saffold going on the non-football injury list, the Bills did sign a guard this week. Jordan Simmons is a 6'4", 339-pound guard. He spent last season with the Raiders. He has started nine games in his career, and that does bring the Bills roster up to that 90-man threshold. I don't know that Jordan Simmons really has a path to be on this roster after Roger Saffold comes off the NFI injury list, but good for him for getting this opportunity and starting in left guard throughout the first three practices has been a rotation of Tommy Doyle, Cody Ford, and David Quisenberry, David Quisenberry and Tommy Ford, or Tommy Ford, Tommy Doyle have also been rotating in at the starting right tackle position because while Spencer Brown did not start training camp on PUP like many of us anticipated he would, it does look like they are slowly ramping him back into shape. So for now, David Quisenberry and Tommy Doyle are both getting a really good opportunity to show that versatility that we know Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott covet. Luca, we can't let this conversation go by because I did mention Cody Ford without mentioning the possibility that there is at least a path to Cody Ford having to block Aaron Donald on opening day. And when I say that sentence, your reaction is? Please, God, no. Um, <laughs> it, it's just, I don't want to get too much into it, but for the love of God, please let that not be something that has to happen that would make my confidence of that week one game plummet. I, I that is a mismatch. That is that is like trying to put Cook on a linebacker, you know, level of a mismatch. Like, holy crap! Please do not have that match of talent there. Just don't don't ruin week one for us because Cody Ford is just getting obliterated, snap after snap after snap by Aaron Donald, fresh, healthy Donald. No, thank you. Please do not. Please, please, please. I've seen what backup guards have to yeah, are capable of doing or lack thereof uh, against Aaron Donald in all the years of watching Cardinals versus Rams because it seems like always there's a guard issue and or center injury issue when the Cardinals have to come against Donald, and it is just a disaster. I've seen the man rip through three depth interior linemen by himself, and that's a problem. So, yeah, Cody Ford. No match for Aaron Donald. Not that many people are. It's just I would really prefer Saffold to be okay. And even then, I don't want to go with the known of forward there. I would much rather see what else we could do because, yeah, the prospect of that idea just scares the living shit out of me. 
It is worth mentioning, at least for now, and I don't think this is something that Bills fans need to think about now, but just keep in the back of your mind. Last year, the starting left guard as the season ended was Ryan Bates. The starting right guard was Daryl Williams. Daryl Williams is still a free agent. By all accounts, Daryl Williams played very well last year at guard. He just was a liability at tackle, which is what they signed him to. So it didn't make sense to keep him on the roster at that high dollar amount that you would pay a starting right tackle to be what would really be a league average guard. So if the summer months continue to go on, we get closer and closer to week number one and Roger Saffold has a setback. I would not be surprised if Daryl Williams gets a call from Vanden Bean like, hey, buddy, what are you up to? Do you want to come back and start for us week one against the Rams? Just keep that in mind. It's an option the Bills have. They don't have a lot of money to play with. We've mentioned that before. So it would have to be a team-friendly deal. It depends what Daryl Williams is really looking for at this point in time, if it is to make a lot of money or just have an opportunity to start. But that is an option the Bills have. I'm aligned with Luca, though. I would much rather see it go to David Quisenberry. Uh, Tommy Doyle signed me up for that. Greg Van Roten, who they signed from the Jets. Anybody besides Cody Ford. But I will also trust Aaron Cromer. I think he's one of the better offensive line coaches in the league. If he sees something in Cody Ford that's worth saving, then I will close one eye and squint the other, hope for the best, and trust Aaron Cromer while I cringe for QB1. Uh, The other big story coming out of training camp is Jordan Poyer did report there is no holdout. And Luca, I know you had a chance to listen to his press conference. I was so impressed with Jordan Poyer, and I'm always impressed with Jordan Poyer. Uh, He's a leader. He gets it. To me, he's just, he's one of the best interviews on the team when you listen to the press conferences because he gives you information, he gives you insight, but he also, he just, he explains football in a way that a lot of players just can't for players or for fans to um, understand and comprehend. I just love listening to him and Hyde talk, but I was really impressed with the headspace he was in because, you know, we've all seen the Rachel Bush tweets. We've all, we've all heard that Jordan Poyer has a chip on his shoulder from always being underappreciated. And now he's going into a contract year, feels underpaid, and to this point in time has not gotten a new deal from the Bills. And he certainly had that right to hold out if he wanted to, but he made the point that it was never really an option for him to hold out. He wanted to come back, be with the Bills. This is where he wants to be. And one thing on that, Luca, I thought it was interesting that Drew Rosenhaus was in attendance for day one of Bills training camp. Because Drew Rosenhaus is based out of Florida. And yes, Jordan Poyer is one of his bigger clients. So he's an agent doing his job. I'm just going to say that I don't think Drew Rosenhaus comes to Buffalo if there's not at least something stirring between the Bills and Poyer's camp. Am I getting the right read on this? I would agree with you. I mean, even as you said, Poyer might be one of Rosenhaus is a power agent. Like the names he represents is long and vast and very impressive. There's a reason he's been around for as long as he has and represented all the well-known big names in the NFL for all these years. Um, He has to be here for a reason, whether the phone calls just weren't working with Bean, he wanted to kind of establish himself face to face to maybe there is some traction and they wanted to get some, you know, major details done in person and the Buffalo weather or Rochester weather in this case is beautiful this time of year. Um, whatever it may be, there is something to it. You know, I'm not going to speculate beyond that. 
you know, I don't think you're crazy to think that. I don't think anyone in the media or, you know, Twitter world or anything is crazy to think such a thing. For him to be spotted here, for him to think it was worth his time to be in Rochester for the opening of training camp, there is something there. The other thing is technically we opened up earlier than most other teams. So maybe he just wanted to jump out here to start and make as many of his clients happy. Who knows? You know, it could be anything. I don't think it's crazy to think that there's something in it, though. I also am not going to I'm never the person that really goes, you know, the sighting of someone means everything like it's oh, it's it's done in the bag. He's going to get the bag or whatever it may be. It's like, no, 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 no. Like it means something beyond that. I'm not going to speculate because guess what? I'm not sitting in the room. I'm not next to him hearing what he's saying. I, I don't know what Rosenhaus is here for beyond wanting to show up for his client. Let it be that like in what capacity? I have no idea. I will go back to your comments on Poyer's press conference and everything about Poyer when it comes to him in the public eye, we'll call it. I think Poyer does an unbelievable job talking to the media, talking to local media, talking to uh, fans, things like that, to make sure everyone understands in a very you know proper, I don't, I don't want to say proper, in a very easy to understand way that you know where his goals are, where his mindset is at, where his ideas are when it comes to football and everything. And it's not like you have to then create or spin off an idea or you know kind of question anything he's saying. Clearly, his eyes are on the prize. Clearly, he wants to be here in Buffalo and be with this team and try to achieve what it seems like they are building up to achieve. And that's what it is. Yes, he does feel underappreciated and paid a little bit and everything like that. But that's the business side of things. And I think he does an incredible job painting that picture for everyone and making sure everyone has that understanding of, hey, look, I get it. I'm not paid, but also I understand on the field and in this organization, what's on the line this year. And I am a big part of that. I want to be a big part of that. And I want to show that I want to be a big part of that. And it's impressive in this day and age where it's as big of a business as it ever has been, you know, obviously with the wide receiver market and everything else, quarterback markets exploding, you know, whatever it may be, it's all about a business and people are writing in crazy things in their contracts to make sure that they focus a little bit more shot at Kyler. Um, But he's still focused on football and he's letting the business thing do its thing. And he has, he has the ability and the mindset and the, you know, presence to let both sides be themselves and make sure he can be the best person that he is at both of those things at the same time. He's a very impressive person. I think you said it right. Him and Micah, they are very impressive men, both playing safety for this team. And it's not surprising that then because of where they are mentally, they are the best safety duo in the NFL. It's not surprising by any means. Love them both. Love Poyer. Love everything about what he has said early in camp, what he has done early in camp and everything like that. It's, it's awesome to see. Um, I'm hoping, you know, we hear some clarity on maybe the contract stuff. Now that the Rosenhaus sighting was there and everything of that nature. I'm not expecting it though. I'm just hoping that that something comes from that, but we'll see, you know, time goes, it's early in training camp, early in the, you know, heat of the off season, we'll call it whatever you want to call it. I, I don't know, you know, the, the meat of the off season now preseason. It it is what it is. Hopefully something happens or at least clarity is given to the public on where everything stands 
before the season starts. That's kind of where my head is at with all of this. I do think that there's something coming down the pike. I, you know, I, who knows what that is. We had speculated a few episodes ago that maybe they don't even extend Jordan Poyer. Maybe they just sweeten his current deal, bump him up a few extra million this year. That could become a little more challenging with only 5 million in cap space that Sal Capaccio reported earlier today. Um, the tea leaves I'm reading from some local reporters, I believe Jay Skursky and Tim Graham were on Tyler Dunn's podcast. If you have a chance to listen to that, please do. It, it was really good to listen to for a lot of reasons, but on Poyer specifically, um, it sounded like they, they think it's a scenario where maybe the bills would just tack on another year and line him up with Micah Hyde um, to where they both would hit free agency at the same time. That can make a lot of sense. One other thing to keep in mind is while the bills are up against the salary cap, a lot of that has to do with the fact that the salary cap in general fell down for the entire league during COVID. And Brandon Bean had really had this team set up to be able to be spenders during these years. And instead they were up against it. Brandon Bean is one of the most forward thinking GMs in this entire league. And then when you look at some of the money that's being talked about thrown around by YouTube and Amazon and whoever's going to wind up with Sunday ticket, I think Brandon Bean has his finger on the pulse of where the salary cap is going to go, which is why I think he was comfortable investing money in Von Miller, putting it in some of those future years. I could see something where maybe Jordan Poyer gets one of those cringe extensions. When I say cringe, it's like you look at the years on, you're like, oh my God, five years for Jordan Poyer, where it's really a three-year deal, but some of that extra money is just bumped into the future when the bills anticipate they will have a lot more space than they have now. I fully, fully, fully trust Bean with the cap management both now and in the future. He is not nearly, nearly as reckless as some GMs the Bills have had in the past. Cough, Doug Whaley, cough. All right, Luca, um, just some other news and notes to get into um, around training camp. Von Miller spoke with the media. And one thing I thought was interesting that he said is that he prefers not to be part of a rotation. His reasoning was pretty simple. He's like, I can't make plays if I'm not on the field, and I feel bad if something happens and I'm not out there. And it's interesting because uh, Joe Marino did a great job of outlining this on his podcast, Locked on Bills, that in Von Miller's entire career, sans the one year he was injured in Denver and missed the entire year, he has never been lower than 75% of the defensive snaps played. And there's been some years where he's even been up in the mid 80s. He's ranged from like 75 to 85. While the Bills under Sean McDermott and Leslie Frazier, the high-end players on this team have been barely over 60%. Now, when I think about Avon Miller, where he's at in his career, the age he's at, the, the goals the Bills have that extend into January and February, I think having him as a rotational player that is only seeing 60 to 65% of the snaps makes a lot of sense, both for his career longevity and also keeping his legs fresh going into January. But Luca, where do you fall on this? Because on one hand, everything I just said about longevity has to ring true. But on the other hand, you have a superstar player who knows his own body. Do you want to trust him in this situation? Or do you want to trust the formula that the Bills have gone with under McDermott and Frazier? I trust the process. I trust the formula. I that's I understand where Vaughn's coming from. And I understand that um he, I mean, I know he's right. 
you can't make plays when you're not on the field. That's uh, you can't score, you know, you can't score on shots. You don't take, you know, all that kind of crap, but we found success with less at the defensive line position by making sure that's always fresh legs out there and by rotating and, and everything that we have come to learn with the system that McDermott and Frazier have done with that personnel group. I, I know Vaughn wants to be out there, but as you even hinted and mentioned, it's, and we've talked about it before Vaughn is kind of like that cherry on top. And Vaughn is that piece to get us over the edge essentially and you don't get us over the edge in September and October. You get us over the edge in December, January, and hopefully February. That's when you really need to win, you know, make that money and do what we need you to do. Now, if Vaughn was like, hey, when it comes to crunch time, when it comes to January, I don't want to be seeing that rotation as much. I would love to hear that. I would love for that mentality. That's where I would kind of lean more with it because it's like, okay, this is why you paid this guy to be here so barring anything crazy like Rousseau all of a sudden looks like better than Von Miller or some crazy world like that that's why you have them in there right you know and hey if Rousseau is better than Miller and you can have both of them out there what would he freaking do sign me Uh, up for that yeah I don't anticipate that by any stretch of the imagination I'm just saying like in January if all of a sudden I see Von out there more because it's like hey this is when we need to lean on you and this is when you need to make that money I'm all for it. And I think that's kind of, I I don't even know if that's necessarily where his message was, because I'm sure he wants to try to do as much as he can for his personal accolades, as much as he wants to win for the bills. And he wants to do that from the beginning all the way through. But at the same time, it's like, Hey, it's almost like he had an incredible playoffs last year for the Rams because early on, it just wasn't, he wasn't needed in Denver. Denver was kind of slacking and, you know, it it just wasn't working out. And then he, I think he even got a knock there before he was then traded to the Rams and the Rams even just kind of, I feel like sat him down. and was like, Hey, we didn't trade for you to play for us in late November. And it really seemed like that. Like he was very limited on his snaps and all that kind of stuff. Like I said, I think there was also an, a minor injury involved in that, but all of a sudden his usage ramped up, you know, week 17 and 18 and then boom, he shot out of the cannon in the playoffs and he was huge and integral to them going on that Super Bowl run. We're trying to emulate that here in Buffalo with him. You know, hopefully that can happen. I don't think it's like he's going to be upset and kind of be a diva about being rotated out and only playing 59% of the snaps in a game or something of that matter. He's just making it known that he wants to be out there and make as many plays as possible. And I'm very okay with that. I just trust the process. I trust what the Bills and McDermott do and have done successfully for all these years now with that defensive line. And I don't really expect that to change just because Von Miller's in the room, at least during the first three quarters of the season, we'll call it. I expect it to be to the status quo, figuring everything out. And then, you know, when it comes to, we'll say mid December maybe things change and you start to get, you know, get the Rolls Royce rolling here and let's stretch its legs a little bit and make sure it's, you know, fully, fully operational and ready to tear shit up come January. Maybe that's kind of the thought process. I hope at least. Yeah. And you can pick and choose your spots. I mean, he can be on the field for 60% of the snaps, but you can identify those snaps that have a higher percentage of being passing downs for the opponent and make sure he's out there for a majority of those. All of that makes sense to me. 
Let's talk about one more semi-injury to mention here, and that is Jamison Crowder, Luca. Um, he has missed the last two days of practice with what Brandon Bean on WGR called soreness. And Isaiah McKenzie has been getting all of the first team reps with the slot. But what's interesting about that is even on day one of practice, when Crowder participated, it was Isaiah McKenzie in that number one slot role. Now, look, it's day one of practice. These guys aren't even wearing pads yet. Just for the record, the pads don't even come on till July 30th. So I think there's going to be a lot of interchangeable parts. I'm not reading anything into, oh, this guy is a starter because at the very first practice he lined up at XYZ. No, no, no. But I think a lot of people had expectations that Jamison Crowder was just going to come in, fill in for Cole Beasley, take over that role, and Isaiah McKenzie would go back to that fourth wide receiver, gadget, um, pseudo kick returner, punt returner, kind of jack of all trades, master of none, um, joker type player on offense. And maybe Luca, this is a sign that the bills view him more as a full-time offensive player. I don't know what to make of this yet. I still think Jamison Crowder is going to have a lot to say about that slot wide receiver competition sitting here recording this on July 26th, Tuesday, July 26th. My prediction for the slot wide receiver role for the bills is the same as it was two months ago. I think what the Bills have with their receiver group are two full-time receivers in Diggs and Davis who will almost never come off the field unless they are just gassed. They have a full-time tight end in Knox who is going to almost always be on the field. And then in that slot receiver role, I think you're going to see a rotation between guys like Crowder, McKenzie. I don't know how much Khalil Shakir you're going to see year one, but the raving reviews he's been getting out of camp so far can't be ignored. And then I also think you're going to see guys like James Cook and potentially OJ Howard factor in to that slot wide receiver position. Obviously, the personnel is different because you're talking about a running back and a tight end. So I think it's going to be kind of a strength in numbers. I don't necessarily anticipate that somebody's going to match the snap count that Cole Beasley set the last two years. Are you agreeing with me? on the slot receiver situation, or are you more in the camp that this is a competition, whoever wins the job wins the job, and it's going to be their job, and they're going to have similar snap counts to Cole Beasley? So I think rotation is not the terminology I want to use for what I kind of anticipate that position to be, you know. but it's not far off either. I kind of come from this world where, and this is just kind of a my philosophy, and based on all these different bodies that kind of the as we've put it mckenzie crowder shakir i mean james cook can even honestly be within that list even though he is listed as a running back he is a running back but like he kind of fits that mold as well they all bring similar things but they all also do some different things and where i'm getting at with this is i feel like this is a situation where the bills found themselves wanting to do a lot on offense and you have your two guys. And I absolutely agree. Diggs Davis never coming off the field. Like those are your two guys. Those are your workhorses. And Davis is going to skyrocket. Hopefully barring anything crazy that an unfortunate happening to him, he's going to skyrocket the work he's putting in unbelievable. But I think the bills, I just have this feeling because they want McKenzie to be part of the offense, like clearly bringing in Tavon Austin and seeing what he can do in the return game and things of that nature. 
has this perception to me, at least that they want McKenzie to be a part of the offense because you're not going to want something to be a part of your offense, or at least it shows at least McDermott doesn't want something to be part of the regular offense that is also handling special teams. That's not normally what he likes to do unless just injuries have forced his hand in doing so. Um, Jamison Crowder gets brought in and he's kind of a similar mold and he fits that slot, you know, plays perfectly and everything like that. I feel like they want to go with a hot hand mentality more. I feel like what they want to do is it's not a rotation. Someone's going to earn that starting spot, say week one, and then they're going to see how it goes. And if it's not working out or, you know, say the, the scripted 14 plays or whatever number it is, just, it's not working with that individual. They'll rotate out and put in, you know, say it was McKenzie week one, all of a sudden Crowder's in there come mid second. Let's see what we got with Crowder. If Crowder's not working, Maybe they even stretch their hand out to Shakir and be like, hey, we'll give you a drive. See what you can provide for us. Things of that nature. And if one of them starts to catch fire a little bit, they're going to just keep going with it for the rest of that game and then reevaluate it come the next week. I feel like that's where they are at with that style position. I don't even want to say with the slot receiver, just that style, that personnel, whatever you want to call it, that that grouping of players that can all kind of fulfill that third target we'll call it or fourth target depending on where you put Knox because I think Knox is going to be a pretty regular guy out there as well so overall I think you know the term rotation might not be where I fall on it but it's not far off because I really do think it's it's not a short leash either because I feel like that brings a negative kind of you know it, it brings a negative vibe to it but I think they want to go with a hot hand and they like because if McKenzie comes out and he's, you know, firing on all cylinders and he's working similar to how he did in, you know, Foxborough last year, they're not going to pull him out of the game. I don't give a shit if Jamison Crowder is 100 percent, you know, unless McKenzie needs a break. He's not coming out of the game because he's on fire. He's everything's working. He's coming down with everything. He's making big plays left and right. You don't take a player like that off the field. But if he's not, if he comes out a little sluggish or, you know, drops a ball here or there and it just doesn't seem like, you know, everything's at 100% or it's not clicking on all cylinders, that's where you have Crowder just step in for a drive or whatever it may be and see what you got there. And then if it's not working, you either go back to McKenzie or maybe even give Shakira a shot. I feel like that's kind of where they're at. And then obviously there's the the seamlessness that is, you know, if they, you know, say McKenzie and Crowder just need a break. Hopefully you get similar like production out of Shakir or whatever may be in that position to just keep the trainer rolling. I I like the hot hand mentality more. I want to believe that's kind of what they're trying to get out of it because I've already seen enough from McKenzie in that role. Obviously, I don't want to say I've seen enough. You've seen some sort of material come out of McKenzie in that role, and it's been amazing. Like there was kind of that week set, what was it, week 17, because it was still a 16-game season against Miami, a bit of a throwaway game a little bit, but regardless, week 17 game against Miami, there's the game I just mentioned in Foxborough last year that was a big game, massive game, and he stepped up huge for us. Things of that nature where if he can replicate that and kind of do that, you're not pulling him off the field. I don't give a shit. I don't care if you really want to rotate him out. If he's that on fire, he is staying on the field from start to finish. That's just how it's going to be. 
And I'm, I am very okay with that. It's the hot hand mentality. You don't take the hot hand off the field unless it needs a rest. That's it, period. So that's kind of where I'm at. I don't hate the rotation mentality if none of them are really clicking on all cylinders, but I feel like the, what they want is one of them to catch fire in that first half, and then you just roll with it in the second half and just try to maximize everything out of it. And ultimately, that's what I think they're trying to achieve with those kind of players in that personnel grouping. And rotation may have actually been a bad word on my part, because I certainly didn't mean like, okay, McKenzie, you get two drives, Crowder, you get two drives, Shakir, you get one, repeat. Like, I don't think that's what we're looking at here. I do think it would be much more like, okay, this week we're playing a team that's a little bit more man-based. Maybe McKenzie makes more sense because he can run away from the DB. This week we're playing a little bit more zone-based defense. Maybe they've determined that Jameson Crowder has a better feel for that stuff. Who knows? It's going to be interesting to watch it all play out. But I will say, Luca, and unfortunately for people listening, there's no record of this. So they're just going to have to trust us. Prior to that week, uh, I don't remember what week it was, the Bills game in Foxborough last year where um, Emmanuel Sanders was, I be- he ended up playing, but it looked really dicey leading up to it. Like he, it looked like he was going to miss the game. And then Cole Beasley had missed it because of COVID. There was a, there was a point during that week where it looked like the Bills receivers were going to be Diggs, Davis, and McKenzie. And I remember we had that conversation in our Discord chat, like, no disrespect to Sanders and Beasley, but we're not convinced that like this is not the best option the Bills have at receiver. It, this could be their best receivers, one, two, and three. And then to piggyback on your point you made about McKenzie, it's a small sample size. It's a tiny sample size, and it's almost the kind of sample size you don't want to mention. but Ever since after year one of Josh Allen, when the Bills had almost no receivers, so McKenzie and Robert Foster and Zay Jones were all getting run, since that point in time when the Bills brought in John Brown and Cole Beasley and then eventually Stefan Diggs and drafted Gabe Davis, McKenzie's been in that backup role. Both times, his name has been called to be a starter. He has been far and away the best skill player on the field for that game. Only two times, the week 17 matchup against the Dolphins, and then obviously the game in Foxborough last year. Small, tiny sample size, but the results have been fantastic. So I'm excited to see where this goes. And we already mentioned him, Luca. We better get into it now. James Cook continues to get rave reviews, not only from the local media in attendance, but also Mike Girardi of NFL Network was in attendance, and he said that James Cook has a gear that no running back on the Bills has had in years. And that does align with what our pre-Jeff scouting opinion of him was. Like we thought he was a guy that could add juice to this offense. Um, You know, I always hesitate to bring up the name Alvin Kamara, but if you think about the role that Alvin Kamara plays where he can be a running back, but also just a moving chess piece on offense, you can get him matched up on linebackers, matched up on safeties dump him a ball down in the flat and he can take it to the house. You start to get really excited about that. And look, you have to temper your expectations. It's day three of training camp. These guys aren't even in pads yet. So yes, it makes sense that shiftier guys that aren't afraid of being tackled could shine a lot more now than when the lights come on. But Luca day three, it's early. It's very early, but everything we would want to read about James Cook by day three, we have been reading and then some. 
Yeah, it, he's checking all the boxes that we expected to already be checked. It, I feel like that's a good way to put it. No surprises, and yet it still feels awesome to see the little things. Again, you know, it's like the the spoiler or whatever you want to call it. This isn't real football time. It's men in shorts just out there kind of getting warmed up, getting a feel for it, understanding, you know, getting the camaraderie back with all the guys, all that fun jazz, you know, dorm life and just going out there, tossing the pigskin a little bit. It's, it's good. But regardless, like there was one tweet I know I shared with you personally, and it was like, it's so fun to see that he put, you know, a, you know, a reserve linebacker in a body bag as quoted. That is exactly what it said. And seeing a tweet like that, it's simple to the point, but everyone knows what that means. And it just gets you excited for what the possibilities are that Cook can bring to this offense. And the idea, it's a reserve linebacker, so you got to take it with a grain of salt. But the idea of him putting a defender in a body bag, just having another weapon that can do such a thing in its own dynamic way is so exciting that it's coming out of the backfield. So defenses have yet another facet of this offense that they really need to worry about. And it is fantastic. It is super exciting. I love adding something new when it comes to a a player that brings a dynamic that we don't have at that position to the table. It's exciting. I love it. It could be like, I think it's, um, I don't know if it's Rich Eisen. It's one of the guys I listen to daily. Someone I listen to daily that they keep bringing every time the bills come up, you know, and they talk about Josh Allen, Diggs, Davis, all that kind of stuff. They keep, I want to say it's Rich Eisen. He, he keeps bringing up cook and going, no one's talking about him. And he is the difference. He is the piece that he looks at and goes, this is what makes this team and that offense really scary. All of a sudden you have that, like, and it's no disrespect to Singletary. And I don't think anyone out there, at least in the know, expects Cook to just take over everything that Singletary is going to have when it comes to the running game. Singletary is still going to be that 1A running back. It's just the difference and the the change up, we'll call it, of Cook is going to really put defenses on edge and not know really what to do hopefully at least and that's exciting and i i cannot wait for them to line up in pads week one of preseason just so i can hopefully watch a little bit of cook and see it on television in front of me that's honestly all these tweets and everything that's coming out about him that's all it's doing to me it's like when are we playing the colts again like why can i not watch this right now in pads (laughs) in a game situation that's all it's doing to me because i just want to see it even in preseason which i am not a fan of it's basically like you know, meaningless football and I don't like it. I'm still going to watch it. And cook is going to be a massive reason why I would bet money. It was rich Eisen because I remember specifically after the draft, when on his show, they were talking about their favorite picks of the entire draft. He singled out James cook for the bills. And he, so rich Eisen, a couple of background things on him. One, he's a jets fan and he's also a huge Michigan Wolverines fan. So he said when the Bills took James Cook, it was like heartbreak to him because he's like this offense that is already unstoppable with the Mandalorian at quarterback and the great receivers and everything that you would want in your offense. Now they just add this dynamite moving chess piece. And from Rich Eisen's point of view, Michigan played Georgia in the college football playoff. And that was probably James Cook's best game 
as a receiving running back. He just absolutely torched Michigan as a receiving threat out of the backfield, lining up in the slot. And that's some of the stuff we've seen James Cook do through the first three days of training camp is him and Singletary on the field at the same time, motioning James Cook to the sideline. We've seen a lot of those Texas routes or angle routes be reported. The Bills are getting in their offense. And Luca, I think it's interesting, and I'll kick it back to you on this just very quickly. There's always been this thought about, okay, great. The Bills finally have a running back that can make um, do damage in the passing game. But Josh Allen has never been that quarterback to check it down to his running back. I remember specifically when after the draft, we were talking about the punt god, and I said to you, are you concerned about his holding? And you said to me, let's not confuse can't do with haven't been asked to do. I wonder if that applies here in your opinion where, yes, has Josh Allen checked the ball down to his running backs as much as other quarterbacks do? No. Since Josh Allen has been the quarterback of the Buffalo Bills, his running backs have been the last season of Shady McCoy and then Frank Gore, Devin Singletary, Zach Moss. So Josh Allen has never had a weapon like James Cook to quote unquote, check it down to here. I'm wondering, Luca, do you fall in the camp of, well, Josh Allen, just not a check down quarterback. He's not going to maximize a running back. Or do you fall on the side of he's never had a guy like this? So it's not even worth mentioning that he's never checked it down to the running back. Did people in that camp really want, you know, Josh Allen to turn into Trent Edwards? I, I, for someone to come out with a statement like that, to answer your question, yes. He has never been asked to do such a thing, at least within a regular occurrence, right? His his checkdowns have seemingly been just, you know, one, two read plays. It's not there. Singletary's probably sitting there in the middle of the field, just two yards down, just check it down to him, get what you get, live another down, right? That's probably been, that's a true checkdown, but it's it's a bailout checkdown. It's a proper checkdown. And that's essentially what his entire career in the NFL and as a Bills quarterback has been when it comes to the life of running backs and checking it down to them. Well, now you have added a weapon where there are going to be plays of which have been designed to be checked down, or I don't even want to call it checked down if it's a design. Right. Because guess what? That's where the play is intended to go. Whether it's you know a screen swing out, you know something simple like that, which some white you know, some uneducated person might perceive to be a checkdown. We'll call it in this camp right now because it's the discussion. Or you have that individual that looks like they're flaring out for a checkdown, but then James Cook also has the ability to fake that out and then turn upfield. And Allen's just putting a sweet dime thirty yards down the field because it got matched up against some slow middle linebacker because that's the ability that James Cook has. You know, that's that's kind of what it's all about, right? It, it's. He has never been asked to play with a running back of the skill set of James Cook. That just the list you just named off, you know, the last year of Shady was very unfortunate is, you know, in the twilight of his career, essentially, we just really didn't want to accept it yet. We'll call it. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, Frank Gore (laughs) far past the twilight of his career at that rate. Um, And then, you know, Zach Moss, we've discussed at length of how it's hard to see him even making the roster for unfortunate reasons and then <laughs> Singletary very good you know motor has been a very good running back he had a great end of the last year 
But again, everyone knows what his skill set is, and it's not that of the receiving kind. It's not that where you're really expecting him to be an incredible threat. A defensive coordinator is going to be very comfortable putting their mic on Singletary and letting that happen. Like that's, it's okay. If Singletary catches it, it's probably going to be a three, five year game. Maybe, maybe Singletary once in a while makes a miss, you live with it, right? It's, it's, it is what it is. James Cook is going to actually create stress and problems because he is that dynamic where, yes, the offense and Josh Allen is going to be told to give him a look. And I am sure Josh Allen will have no problem with designed looks to James Cook because that probably means the ball is getting out of his hand faster. That is ultimately what that means. And if getting the ball out of Josh Allen's hand faster and a dynamic offense to a dynamic player of James Cook's caliber happens, which then ultimately means Josh Allen is going to be upright and taking less hits. All of these things should get people very happy and excited. I don't know why anyone would have a problem with this or even criticize Allen in the past and think that James Cook will not work. We have not had a player of this caliber. We have not asked Josh Allen to even try and attempt things that they will most likely, this is all speculation, of course, but they will most likely try to devise with James Cook and ask of James Cook and Josh Allen to deliver to James Cook. So it's a ridiculous amount of people, or I don't want to say it like it's a lot of people, but the people that feel that way or try to criticize Allen or even bring it up as a question, it's silly because you have to look at the context as a whole. And yes, just like we talked about with Punk God and his, you know, well, he doesn't know how to hold. No one's asked him to do it. He's never needed to do it. Like you can't criticize someone for something that they've never even been asked to do. It's like hating a food that you've never once tasted. Well, no, you can't hate it if you haven't tasted it yet. My seven-year-old daughter would vehemently disagree. She hates everything she's never tried. Look, and trust me, there are certain things that I look at and I go, that will (laughs) never touch my mouth. But regardless, the analogy makes sense, right? And that's all that matters here. So yes, I 100% agree with that sentiment. It's ridiculous to argue it. And um, yeah, that's that. I'm excited to see what they can do with James Cook, but I do want to mention, I misspoke. I said that the Bills had never had a downfield threat at the running back position in Josh Allen's career. I totally forgot about Patrick DeMarco, who was the go-to receiver on a 50-yard bomb in overtime of a playoff game. So, boy, do I have egg on my face. I started laughing. Eat your words. (laughs) Eat your words. Patrick DeMarco. Uh, I'm excited to see what happens with James Cook. So, all right, Luca, that's, to me, the high points of what's been going on at training camp. As always, please check into our Twitter account. We try to tweet stuff out as it happens during the day, the high points of training camp. Um, it's Bill's Chat Pro Football Podcast on Twitter. Um, just let's bounce it around the league now before we ultimately get into our AFC East Rivals Watch. Just some news and notes around the league. Uh, we'll start off with former Bills wide receiver Cole Beasley. It was reported today by NFL Network's Mike Garofolo that he is actually drawing interest from multiple teams. Um, the reason he hasn't signed yet is he's just not overly interested in signing a low-dollar contract. He's waiting for the right opportunity. Um, he was asked by, I believe, a Dallas Cowboys podcast account if he would be open to a reunion with the Dallas Cowboys. And Cole Beasley actually got on there and quote tweeted, I would love to be reunited with Dak Prescott. So I don't think a lot of us would be surprised if Cole Beasley winds up back in Dallas for a lot of reasons that have to do with football and non-football, but that's something that bears watching. 
Um, there's a couple holdouts going on around the league with two big time powerhouse teams in the AFC. And we talked about both of these during previous episodes of Rivals Watch. Orlando Brown and Jesse Bates both are franchise tagged players. Orlando Brown left tackle for the Kansas City Chiefs. Jesse Bates starting safety for the Cincinnati Bengals. Jesse Bates is an excellent football player, by the way. Orlando Brown, good left tackle. Um, both of these would be very important. Brown, particularly because of the position he plays. They're both franchise tagged players. The deadline to extend franchise tagged players has come and gone. So there's no flexibility now for the team to actually go in and extend their contract. But now Orlando Brown's agents and Jesse Bates agents have said they're not playing on the current deals that they're on. So to me, I'm glad this isn't the Bills problem, but this is feels like a bit of a roadblock. That's going to be interesting to watch play out. Luca's guy, Josh Rosen, is back in the oh. NFL. Oh, and oh, oh. maybe found himself into a starting position for the Cleveland Browns, depending on what happens, obviously, with Deshaun Watson's suspension. And then obviously Jacoby Brissett is still there. We would see what would happen between Josh Rosen and Jacoby Brissett, but the Browns did bring in Josh Rosen. I am just kidding. Luca is a big non Josh Rosen fan, and he has let me know every step of the way, even when a team that he likes a lot, the Cardinals drafted him. He was not a big fan. Speaking of the Cardinals, their division rival Rams had some news this week. It did appear that Jalen Ramsey was going to start the season on the pup list. He did not. The Rams changed their mind. It looks like he's going to be ready to roll for the start of training camp and the start of week one. Uh, we do have another holdout to mention, not franchise tag related, but Roquan Smith was is holding out of Bears camp. He is going into the final year of his rookie deal. Excellent linebacker for the Bears. Luca has talked time and time again about how bad that Bears roster is. Roquan Smith, one of the only few bright spots on that team. And now they look at a real possibility of starting the season without him. And right before we went on the air tonight, Luca, a piece of news came out that Julio Jones will be signing with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to join a group with Chris Godwin, Mike Evans, and of course, Tom Brady, who now has another weapon at his disposal. Before we get into Rivals Watch, Luca, anything there around the league that stands out to you? Uh, Josh Rosen will mean absolutely nothing to the Browns, first and foremost. He is a flaming heap of garbage. Um, and then Julio, the Julio signing in all seriousness. Now the Julio signing really tells me that maybe Godwin's health is of some concern, I guess. Um, there's something there that maybe they felt the need to bring in Julio. Um, obviously Julio is trying to ring chase here. It's not, you know, that's not, or it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. He's now teaming up with the individual that literally stole one off his finger. Um, yeah, I mean, overall, nothing's like too, too crazy. Cole Beasley going back to Dallas makes a lot of sense. I would kind of expect that to happen. Yeah, I mean, around the league, it's it's all about getting back to camp. We talked to, you know, about the Bills, of course, but everyone's starting to kind of get excited. And unfortunately, and well, fortunately for the Bills and unfortunately for at least the Chiefs and uh, Bengals, you know, they have some holdout issues. It, God, it's great to be a Bills fan and not deal with any of that kind of crap. Holy mackerel. That is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing really to talk about overall. I just want to one more time say Josh Rosen, flaming heap of garbage, <laughs> should not matter in the NFL landscape. Um, he shouldn't have ever existed in the NFL, and I think we can move on. 
Yeah. Uh, the Bills got the right Josh, despite what many, many <laughs> Bills fans thought on draft night. I did see an interesting tweet from Stephen Holder, who covered the Indianapolis Colts for the Athletic. He is no longer with the Athletic. I think he still does cover the Colts. I'm not positive. He is a fantastic journalist, though, because the Colts, uh, Frank Frank Reich, and um, I want to say Chris Ballard also had a press conference today. I'm not entirely sure, uh, but they both, one of them came out and said that the Colts didn't have any interest in Julio Jones. Then it led to a um, situation where like, yeah, we still would kick the tires on bringing back T.Y. Hilton. Stephen Holder made a great point that I didn't even connect the dots on. If a team that has Matt Ryan at quarterback and has a glaring need at wide receiver has no interest in Julio Jones, who's still a free agent at the end of July, that probably says something about Julio Jones that we're not aware of. And we heard some whispers coming out of Tennessee that he definitely wore out his welcome very quickly there in Tennessee. So just something to keep in mind. We we learned last year with Antonio Brown that the Bucks are not an organization that minds taking on, um, I don't want to say problem children, because that just hasn't been Julio Jones in his career. And, and obviously, in no way am I lumping him into the craziness that is Antonio Brown. But if there is any kind of a diva mindset or an entitled mindset or anything that you'd want to let your mind race to with Julio Jones, I think they trust their leadership with Tom Brady, obviously, and you know the room with Mike Evans and Chris Godwin. But I thought that was interesting and a good point that the team that has Matt Ryan had no interest in kicking the tire and, by the way, has a ton of cap room and a need for wide receiver, had no interest in Julio Jones. Just something to keep in mind. Uh, you know, There's usually a reason why guys are available at the end of July. And it's not because they're going to come to your team and put your team over the top. All right, Luca, let's get into Rivals Watch, the AFC East edition. This is going to be a little quicker than our other Rivals Watch because we did spend a good portion of the show talking about Bills training camp. But we are going to hit some high points on the Bills division rivals. And let's start with a team that the Bills ended their season last year, the hated New England Patriots. In 2021, they were 10 and 7, which was good for a wild card team. They did get bounced first round. Who was the team that beat them? I'm having a hard time remember. I think it was kind of cold and the quarterback was amazing. Oh, yeah, that was us. The Buffalo Bills beat them 47 to 17 in a game that looked absolutely painfully cold from the comfort of my basement watching it on TV. The Patriots last year were 15th overall in total offense, fourth in total defense. Their head coach is Bill Belichick, which everybody listening to this podcast knows. He has been with New England since 2000 and has a gross record of 254 wins and 99 losses. And his playoff record, Luca, is even more obnoxious. 30 and 12, 30 and 12, six times Super Bowl champion. He's been to nine Super Bowls as a head coach, multiple more as a coordinator. We're not even going to mention those. His resume is, I think, undoubtedly the best head coach in the history of the sport. It's, it's amazing. It's absolutely positively amazing. The rest of his coaching staff, not so amazing. Um, Josh McDaniels left to become the head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders, and that leaves a voided offensive coordinator to be filled by uh, checking my notes here, checking my, oh, that's right, nobody. They are not going to have an offensive coordinator. They are going to split the duties between uh, Joe Judge, who has a background in special teams, and 
Matt Patricia, who has a background in defense. I'm pretending like I don't know the answers here to try to act like I'm confused because it is very confusing why a team with a second year quarterback who did have some bright spots last year does look promising would put him in a situation where there's not one pedigreed play caller in the building. Bill Belichick comes with a defensive background, obviously knows offensive football, but I don't know what the Patriots are doing at the coordinator spot. We'll get into that in a bit here. Let's get through the overview. Uh, The Patriots this offseason took a vastly different approach from last year. In the 2021 offseason, the Patriots went out and spent $163 million in free agency. This offseason, they spent $26.9 million, a much more conservative approach. This team is led by their second-year quarterback, Mac Jones, who did have a very, very solid rookie season, would have probably been the offensive rookie of the year if not for the superstar Jamar Chase season put out there. Mac Jones had 3,800 yards, 22 touchdowns, 13 interceptions, did bring his team to the playoffs. And, you know, there are some bright spots on this Patriots team. They have a very solid running back core. Damian Harris by pro football focus standards, was the second best running back in the sport last year next to Jonathan Taylor. Uh, They got a guy in the draft we like a lot, Pierre Strong. They have Ramondre Stevenson. But to me, Luca, this team loses me when it comes to the weapons they have around Mac Jones. Uh, Last year, their leading receiver was Jacoby Myers, who led the way with 83 receptions for 866 yards. Second was Hunter Henry with 603 yards and nine touchdowns. I apologize. He's not second. Um, He is their leading tight end, though, and that was one of the two players they pumped a ton of money into. Jonu Smith was the other one, and he had a very disappointing season, less than 300 receiving yards and only one touchdown. The Patriots attempted to upgrade that unit by trading for Devontae Parker from the Miami Dolphins and then drafting the very speedy Tyquan Thornton in the second round of the draft. The problem is that felt like to a lot of people watching that, as a very, very, very big reach as receivers like George Pickens, Sky Moore, Alec Pierce were still on the board, and the Patriots went with Tyquan Thornton, who, while does have that very high-end speed, feels like a receiver that needs to work on basically the rest of his game. Let's talk about what the Patriots did this offseason. They lost some big, big names. They lost J.C. Jackson, their Pro Bowl cornerback, to the Los Angeles Chargers, They traded one of their stalwarts on the offensive line, Shaq Mason, to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He is going to be reunited with Tom Brady. Jamie Collins, Donta Hightower, and Ted Karras all left via free agency. They did sign former first-round pick Jabril Peppers, um, formerly of the Cleveland Browns and the New York Giants. He's an interesting addition to that defense who already has Kyle Duggar because he's kind of another one of those safety linebacker hybrid type players. That gives them some flexibility to play some big nickel, give some give some good looks there. Um, and they also brought back former Super Bowl hero Malcolm Butler to replace J.C. Jackson. Malcolm Butler is now 32 years old and has not regained that form that he played with in that Super Bowl win over the Atlanta Falcons. Luca, that is a Patriots overview. What comes to mind for you first when thinking about the New England Patriots in 2022? Well, to your last point, Malcolm Butler was last known quitting on the Cardinals because he just didn't feel like playing anymore. Just want to throw that one out there. He clearly has his mind in interesting places. Um, I just think he didn't like the defense. I don't blame him partially. But uh, so when it comes to the Patriots, it's kind of a 
it's an interesting predicament here. So everything you talked about kind of goes, oh my God, everything with the personnel, everything with what's going on, what came, what left, what came in, they're trending downwards. And I naturally can understand how people would say this team is going to be a lot worse. I want to kind of, how do I put this? I kind of want to show there's two things I think about with the Patriots. It's kind of a one's pretty much status quo. And the other is kind of a little out of the box. The first and foremost, what status quo about the Patriots is I will never in my life do two things in the NFL. I will never bet against Tom Brady and I will never bet against Bill Belichick period. End of story. You talk, you talked about his accolades. I mean, even as a coordinator, he figured out a way to stop the, you know, the air attack that was Jim Kelly in that Super Bowl. Unfortunately, we don't have to bring up any more of that. And it has been a long career sense of success. I will never bet against him. I believe that, yes, he does some things very odd. He does, you know, let's go back to him trading for Jonathan Cooper. And I believe that was Chandler Jones he left go, let go because he just didn't feel like pain for him. Interesting move. Did not work out. Jonathan Cooper, very underwhelming guard, was gone of the, out of the league, I think, uh, the year after they traded for him. He was quite awful. But what I will say about Bill Belichick is he gets a lot out of his role players and stuff. I mean, people like Kyle Van Noy were just depth pieces and average players when they were in Detroit before they were a Patriot altogether and things like that. They come on over. They become stalwarts or at least very solid players for the team. They have shown that they've had players that were very good for them, then went to Cleveland or wherever else and never found any sort of success. They may have this happen yet again when they traded for Mac Wilson, just some, you know, okay linebacker from Cleveland and sent them Vinovich, right? Vinovich had kind of some flashes. He looked okay for them. He might become absolutely nothing in Cleveland. Clearly, Bill Belichick knows how to get a lot out of a lot of players. I will say a lot of people are pointing at J.C. Jackson leaving and then their secondary uh, corner specifically looks a little rough. You know, I pointed at Malcolm Butler saying his head might not be in the right place. You talked about his age and everything of that. Jalen Mills, he loves to get burnt. You know, there's memes of him still out to this day of just him as burnt toast. They also did things like... This is and it's going to be weird because it's it's a homerism in a weird way. But they drafted a guy in the fourth round named Jack Jones. He went to Arizona State and I know him very, very well being Arizona State. I when that pick happened, I was it's a fourth round pick. What could it possibly mean? Jack Jones was one of the better press man corners in college football. He was a USC commit. He transferred to ASU because he just kind of got beat and they changed things up at USC and USC kind of sucked at the time anyways. And he wanted to play for a man press style defense, a very aggressive defense too. ASU loved to blitz and just kind of leave all their DBs on an island. That's what they did. The one DB that would generally turn in a very good performance and succeed in man press with one-on-ones, Jack Jones. And guess what? The Patriots love to just put their corners on an island and play man press. He could be someone that unfortunately may work out and Bill Belichick, instead of as a fourth round pick, it made sense for any team to take him. 
Bill Belichick just may be able to elevate his game to the NFL quicker than basically anyone else out there. Things like that have me thinking like Belichick might know what he's doing. Now, the second point I want to finally get into here is you brought up how there is legitimately no offensive coordinator on this entire organizational roster. There is no one that can run that offense. They lost Josh McDaniels. I will just say this. Mac Jones's biggest skill has always been known to be his ability to diagnose and understand a playbook quicker than anyone else, as well as the competitiveness that you know stems all the way back to Bama. And he knew the offense better than Tua and anyone out there when he was just a uh, scout team quarterback, right? In a weird way, the thought process I have behind this is, is Mac Jones, a second-year quarterback, going to run the offense with just the aid of the individuals you brought up? Which is a weird thing to say because, again, why wouldn't you put an offensive coordinator mind there instead of a special teams coordinator and a defensive coordinator of historical knowledge to them and abilities? Um, Why would you do that? I don't know. Seems pretty crazy. And again, this is a little out of the box, but I really wonder if New England's thought process of not having an offensive coordinator is, well, he had a year of an offense that seemingly found a decent amount of success with Mac Jones at the helm, and they were able to kind of maximize the most out of the underwhelming talent that was around him and still is kind of around him. It's nothing much changed. Devontae Parker comes in, whoopity do. And that's about it, right? The offense is going to run through Damian Harris and Ramondre Stevenson. But ultimately, I really wonder if they are trusting Mac Jones to be that offensive coordinator and be the play caller on the field and really understand game tempo. And they're going to trust him to drive the ship. It's a ballsy move. It's a crazy out of the box move if that's really what they're thinking. But it's hard for me to believe that, you know, they're going to trust a defensive coordinator or a special teams coordinator to operate an offense. Like I just, I would trust a quarterback that's a smart quarterback to run the offense, even though he's only a second year, than an individual that's never done that in their life and been asked to do many other things. It just doesn't make sense to me to just be like, okay, Hey, by the way, I know you've been calling defenses for the past 15 years of your life. And working with personnel groups on the defensive side of the ball, I need you to be the OC and actually do passing game play call here. Like, I, I need you to take care of that. It just doesn't make sense. Like, why would you ever in a million years do that? Just hire an individual for that. So part of me out of the box thinks that might be their thought process and solution to what everything overall New England's going to be wild. They're, they're going to be an interesting watch. I'm very, very curious. You'll probably know what you're getting out of them in those first four or five weeks which is also a weird thing to say because normally you actually have no idea what you're getting out of New England in those four, four or five weeks. Normally that's when they're just trying to figure it out. But I feel like this year with all these question marks we've just brought up, I really don't know what you're going to get. And until those first four, four or five weeks happen, you're not going to know. And ultimately, I'm going to say, I again, to wrap it up with a nice, beautiful bow, I will never bet against Bill Belichick. And I really think he's trying to think out of the box here. And what could he, what does he trust the most? And he just lost Josh McDaniels, but had an offense that was successful. And he has this piece that is Mac Jones. 
that is a very smart individual and has a very firm grasp of this offense. Maybe he just wants to let him drive the ship, try it out and see how it goes. And if he can operate, if you can get away with Mac Jones really having that well of an understanding of, you know, game tempo and the offense that they want to run and he can operate that that himself, that's an incredibly valuable asset that then you're now trying to expand on for years and years to come. And you're doing it right now at a cheap wage, which maybe then they can be more aggressive again in the offseason next year and try to really surround him with something of success of that offense that he is now just a finely tuned machine in. Maybe that I'm just, again, trying to create something in my mind of what their thought process is, is because it is just nuts. I, I ultimately, it doesn't actually make any sense. I just, I'm trying to create a belief of what are they thinking about? And that's kind of where my mind goes when it comes to the New England Patriots. Well, you're right about one thing, in my opinion, that is definitely an out of the box opinion. I really hope that's their plan because I think that would be hilarious to put that on their second year quarterback's plate of, Hey, by the way, um, we're not giving you a ton of weapons. And we also want you to design our offensive scheme and call your own plays. That would be wild. Um, but I think it's wild as it is with, um, Joe judge and Matt Patricia splitting duties. What I find is interesting about the Patriots is they have a track record since Bill Belichick became head coach of letting good players go and just sort of shrugging it off. They did it with lawyer Malloy. They've done it with Ty law. They did it with Richard Seymour. They traded away Randy Moss for peanuts. This is an organization that historically has not been afraid to let good players go. And then when you see things like JC Jackson going to the chargers or Shaq Mason getting traded to the Bucks because they want to save money. And then they just anticipate replenishing that position through the draft with a player like a Cole Strange or a Jack Jones, who you mentioned, or a Marcus Jones, who we both loved in the pre-draft process that I love that pick for the Patriots in the third round. You know, that's something that the Patriots have done for years and gotten away with. The problem is they don't have that get out of jail free card in Tom Brady, where if you make a misstep, you're still going to make the playoffs and still be a championship contender because your quarterback is a wizard. When I look at this Patriots team, I don't mind letting players go and replenishing through the draft. But what I don't see on this Patriots team, with all due respect to Christian Barmar, who I think potentially is a future star in the league, or Matthew Judon, who I think has had moments but really tailed off the end of last year. I would not call him a star. Luca, when I look at this Patriots roster, am I wrong in saying I don't see one great player? No, you're not wrong. There's no, it's it's just a bunch of role players. The entire roster, just all role, average, you know, they do their jobs, players, which, I mean, I'm not too surprised with. It's the Patriots. That's kind of what they seem to want but it's weird you need yeah. one superstar yeah and like there's players we like i like damian harris a lot i like i like um kyle duggar quite a bit you know there's things to like about players like jacoby myers hunter henry's had some moments in the league um trent brown has been a solid tackle here and there but you know we did mention christian barmore i think has a chance to become one of the upper echelon interior defensive linemen in the league he's not there yet certainly so, you know, there's pieces there, but, you know, a player like a JC Jackson, you could have made the argument was great. He was great anytime he lined up outside of when he lined up against Stefan Diggs. So just something interesting to keep in mind with the Patriots. Can their philosophy of 
um, X's and O's over Jimmy's and Joe's continue to thrive when they continue to let good players go, when they don't have that proven commodity at quarterback who can save them when the rest of the roster isn't up to snuff. Well, let's talk about a division rival whose roster is largely viewed as being one of the better rosters in the entire league, and that is the Miami Dolphins. They were also, or they were nine and eight last year, and that was enough for them to pull the plug on Brian Flores after three years, a record of 24 and 25. And Luthka, I think the understatement of the century would be to say that it was a messy divorce between the Dolphins and Brian Flores. There were rumors coming out of Miami that after Tom Brady announced his retirement, that Tom Brady was going to buy ownership in the Dolphins, and then Sean Payton was going to be the head coach, and then uh, part owner Tom Brady was going to come out of retirement and be quarterback for the Dolphins. Those rumors never came true, and uh, they ended up hiring Mike McDaniel, former offensive coordinator from the San Francisco 49ers. And to this point in time, despite dipping their toe in the Deshaun Watson sweepstakes, have stuck with Tua at quarterback. The general manager is Chris Greer. He's held that position since 2016. In 2021, the Dolphins were 24th in total offense and 15th in total defense. They didn't add Tom Brady, but they did add another TB at quarterback. Teddy Bridgewater was brought in to be the backup quarterback to Tua, and a lot of people also view him as the backup plan if Tua does not elevate to a level that the Dolphins feel like they can win with and win in a big way this season. They revamped their running back room this offseason, Luca, by signing a guy we both really liked, Chase Edmonds. They also signed Raheem Mostert, who comes over with McDaniels from the 49ers, and Sony Michelle, who did have a very strong year last year in LA for the Rams. The biggest move they made this offseason, though, was trading for Tyreek Hill to pair with Jalen Waddell. I think that probably gives them the fastest wide receiver duo in the history of the league. It's hard to imagine anybody had a faster group than that. And when you talk about those two guys with the speed we mentioned at running back and Mike Jacecki, the Dolphins' weapons are going to be an absolute headache to defend for all opposing defenses, including the Bills. Another free agent splash the Dolphins made, which I think was very smart, Teron Armstead, the um, the offensive tackle from the New Orleans Saints, was brought in a big mega money deal. The Dolphins had a really bad offensive line last year, and I think this Armstead move doesn't just fix their left tackle position. It fixes about three other positions with a domino effect. You take Liam Eikenberg, who was playing left tackle last year, and now Armstead can play left tackle. Liam Eikenberg can now slide back to right tackle, which is a more comfortable position for him. Robert Hunt, who was playing right tackle last year, can slide into guard, which is a better, more comfortable position for him. They brought in Connor Williams, who was not good with the Cowboys, to compete at center, and they still have the first-round pick, Austin Jackson, who has not been good to this point, competing for a guard spot. The Dolphins have a very strong front seven with names like Christian Wilkins, last year's first-round pick, Jalen Phillips, Raekwon Davis, Emmanuel Ogba, Melvin Ingram from Kansas City. They are a formidable front on the front seven. And then last year in the draft, they got an absolute stud in Javon Holland um, to pair in the secondary with Xavier Howard and Byron Jones, one of the best cornerback duos in the league. To me, the X-Man is probably the best man coverage, pure cornerback in the league. And one of the better all around cornerbacks 
in the league, certainly in that conversation. But Luca, to me, any conversation about the Dolphins, their roster, which I think is still very good, it all comes to a halt because I feel like the Dolphins are a team that unless their quarterback takes a leap, it's just not going to amount to anything. Yeah, it's I've been referring to them in any conversation I have with anyone as just paper sleeping giants. Yes. Top to bottom. I mean, the receiving core alone. You didn't even mention Cedric Wilson Jr. I think that was a great signing on their part as well. I I liked him in free agency. I thought he unfortunately had I think he's the one that got hurt for Dallas late in the year last year, Um, but he was looking great up until that point. Things of that nature. I mean, top to bottom, take the quarterback away. An unbelievable roster that I think could do damage against any team in the league. It's just the problem is when you have so many unproven things, at least on the offensive side, when it comes to Reek and Cedric Wilson, I mean, Taron Armstead, you're going to probably get a very, very, very solid left tackle. As you pointed out, things of that nature, you brought in three running backs, which are now your top three running backs that have never been there. Chase Edmonds, Raheem Oster, Sony Michelle. You bring in all these fresh new faces and these dynamic players and things of that nature. The only known commodity on that side of the ball is Tua Tonga Vailoa. The problem with that is it's Tua. And I call him a paper sleeping giant because on paper, yes, they should be a sleeping giant. But the paper is supposed to be condescending. It's supposed to sound like I really don't trust it because I don't. It's a piece of paper that's as thick and tough I think it is. Tua is going to ultimately, I believe, hold this team back. They just, Tua has not shown anything that makes you believe that he can do anything past five, 10 yards down the field with authority and, and, you know, accuracy. He can be accurate, but then also he doesn't really have the speed on the ball to drive it there confidently and really make sure that it's on time all the time. And then reek from there or, you know, waddle or whoever can really make a play with that ball in their hand. Like he has never shown anything that it's just, look, he can manage the game for you. I guess he can really just try to, you know, maybe not screw it up for you, but that's not the team they have around him. They have a team that should be attacking it and should be getting at it against anyone. And that's just not what Tua's skill set gives you. It will never give you that, it seems like. I, unless he takes a massive leap forward that ultimately anyone outside of Miami just doesn't see happening, I it's just ultimately going to be their downfall. And it's the most important and valuable position in football, maybe even all professional sports. It's the quarterback. It's definitely the most difficult professional position in any sport. Like, period. The NFL quarterback. It is the most difficult. And unfortunately, they don't have an elite one there. They don't even have one that you could probably consider in the top 12. Tua is not that guy. Tua might not even be top 16. Oh, God, no. And it's like... <clears throat> not right I'm, now. I'm trying, to be, I'm trying to be kind, right? And, and it's, it's weird because normally I'm a little more uh, polarizing with my takes. But in reality, Tua is going to hold them back. Tua is going to be the thing that, look, Reek can say all this shit he fucking wants about quarterback play and Tua being this and that and all that kind of stuff. Tua cannot do one thing even remotely close to his previous quarterback. 
can't even do one thing. I don't like even running. I take Patrick Mahomes. So ultimately, I wouldn't be surprised if Reek is eating his own words halfway through three quarter, three quarters of the way through the season and maybe even putting on a show on the sideline of how pissed off he is because we have seen Reek when he's not getting the ball in a Patrick Mahomes offense and he is complaining about it on the sideline. Wait until we see what happens when Tua's throwing ducks as Reek just absolutely destroyed someone 20 yards down the field and the ball just skipped up to his feet. I, it's going to be great because I want to watch Miami fail, but boy, that is, it's a ballsy move and it's a ballsy thing to really trust Tua to operate this offense. And people can talk all they want about Mike McDaniel and the Niners getting all they can out of Jimmy G. And is Tua really that much worse or better than Jimmy G? Who knows? Jimmy G is nothing special and all that kind of stuff. But Mike McDaniel is not exactly the guy who was the architect for it. I mean, do we forget about Kyle Shanahan all the time? Is Kyle Shanahan not the guy who got everything out of every running back in the history of his running backs? I mean, Tevin Coleman wouldn't even have an NFL career of any length, I believe, if it wasn't for Kyle Shanahan. I think if Kyle Shanahan had his hands on Chase Edmonds and Sony Michelle, as he already did with Raheem Mostert, it would be incredible to see what they could do. I'm not the kind of person that's going to be like, oh, because Mike McDaniel's just been sitting at the table with him, he's going to replicate all of that. I d- yes, he has been able to absorb all that knowledge, but is he going to be able to understand how to utilize it at that level? I Why would I believe that until I see it? I just can't. So, And on top of it all, and I know I've had this discussion with you on off air, if Mike McDaniel is trying to do the Jimmy G template with two up and trying to do that with this offense, and it's going to go through, you know, the running game and, and, you know, timely passing and be able to really orchestrate and control the game on the offensive side of the ball in very creative ways. If it's not working, the Niners kind of have these two guys. They have these two weapons. I don't know if you've heard of them, Josh, uh, George Kittle, Really good tight end. Pretty good. I've heard of him, yeah. He's had his health issues. Sounds familiar. Pretty good. And then they had this other guy, uh, Debo Samuel, I think his name is. Rings the bell. One of the most dynamic weapons, not wide receiver, not running back, everything, weapons in the NFL. He's currently trying to get paid a crazy amount of money, and people are like, you better pay him or else it's going to be the biggest mistake in your life when it comes to the Niners. They don't have that. They might have Reek, who is the fastest human potentially on a football field or any sporting field in general. Uh, you have Jalen Waddle, who is a very dynamic wide receiver. You have Chase Edmonds, who you talked about we love as a running back. I mean, Mike Gusecki is a talented receiving tight end. Things of that nature. They are not. None of those guys are George Kittle, and none of those guys are Debo Samuel. Debo Samuel is an absolute beast of a weapon he can he is the Niners best running back it looked like last year and also by the way he was their number one wide receiver like I I mean in my opinion it's Brandon Ayuk as a pure receiver but I'm not going to fight anyone if they tell me Debo Samuel's better why that's a ridiculous thing to do um but they don't have those guys to bail them out and that's the key if the offense is not working the way that Mike McDaniel wants it to, they don't have a Debo. They don't have a Kittle to bail them out and just pull a play out of their ass. Reek can do it once in a while in his own speedy way, 
but it's not going to be able to do it consistently in a game. It's just going to be, he can break an 80 yard touchdown for you once, but if you're down by 17 to the bills or you're down 24 to the bills or whatever it may be, you know, seven points in the third, as the bills are just steamrolling you drive after drive after drive does not matter. You needed a guy like Debo or Kittle who's grinding out those plays for you and able to bail you out once in a while over and over and over again. And teams have already shown if they really focus on Tyreek, yes, he's the fastest son of a bitch out there, but he can be taken away. It's just then all those other guys need to step up and pick up the slack. That's where they might have that downfall because none of those guys are the guys that can really take over a Debo, a Kittle, or whatever. And then Tua is just going to have to play really, really well, which I know neither of us believe is at all possible. So I know I went on a lot there, but ultimately, yes, Tua is going to be this team's downfall unless some crazy thing happens, which is him taking a massive step forward this year. And I just don't see how that's going to happen. When we're doing these rival watch videos, it's our videos, previews, it's it's kind of like trying to predict what's the path to success for these teams. What has to happen to line up the path to success? And to me, the Dolphins have the simplest path to success, which is also probably the most difficult. It's all lined up for the Dolphins to be really, really good. It's just they don't have the quarterback. If Tua takes a leap and becomes as good as Dolphins fans thinks he can be, the Dolphins are going to be right there with the Bills as far as talent roster for roster. That's if Tua can elevate into that top-end quarterback. I don't even think Tua is a good quarterback. You mentioned top 12, top 16. I wouldn't put him in my top 20. I feel like they signed Teddy Bridgewater for a reason. And I just look at Tua. I don't see the arm strength. I don't see the athleticism. I don't see anything that the X-factor quarterbacks do that take over a game. So for someone like him, it's going to have to be timing, anticipation, things that he has not shown to be a strength of his game. Um, Jalen Waddle and Tyreek Hill give them so many options on the outside. I think Tyreek Hill is fantastic, maybe the best weapon in the entire sport. Jalen Waddle, to me, was my favorite receiver in the class last year. I just love everything he can do. And I think they are going to be wasted, at least for this year, with Tua. The good thing for the Dolphins is if it does blow up in their face, and Tua does not become that guy. One, they have the option with Teddy Bridgewater. I would don't think that's any kind of like a Super Bowl move, but I think Teddy Bridgewater um, starting seven or 17 games for the Dolphins probably could get this roster to the playoffs. The other thing is, despite trading such a big bounty for Tyreek Hill, the Dolphins still have two first-round picks in the next draft. So if it doesn't work out with Tua, they should have some options at the position uh, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens with Tua because on one hand you have the fans who are just like, oh, well, if you compare his stats to early Josh Allen, it's like, okay, cool. Josh Allen was jumping over linebackers and throwing balls 80 yards in the air. So while it wasn't always pretty, you saw the untapped potential. Um, Tua on his best day is a smaller, unathletic, not rocket armed, I just don't see the special traits where you're like, man, if he can just unlock this, this, and this, he can be one of the best in the sport. To me, it's like, yeah, if he can do this, this, and this, maybe you have Kirk Cousins. That's kind of where <laughs> I'm at with him. Yeah. And real quick, I'll step in. And you mentioned to uh, it's last year, it's kind of figured out or we're moving on. They have the draft capital. I'm really looking at the Ravens to hopefully extend Lamar because of fear little whisper once in a while that I hear out there and it just 
just imagine a world where Lamar, who then hits the open market, somehow finds his way down to South Beach, what an area he loves to spend his time, and then signs with the Miami Dolphins. Because if you take this team, no, and I don't want to Lamar, to, if you put a Lamar Jackson on this team, terrifying. I refuse to, I refuse to imagine that, Luca, and you can't make me do it. <laughs> I bring it up all the time just to be like, hey, the Ravens need to extend Lamar, pay him $50 million, or else the reality of Miami trying to swoop in and get him might become a thing. And that is terrifying. But yeah, we can move on now. The Dolphins are set up for any quarterback that's good to come in and look really well. Uh, the problem is they don't have a good quarterback right now on their team. And if the one position on your team you're not strong at, football is a team sport but you can't hide a bad quarterback. We learned that for about 17 years straight in Buffalo. Speaking of a team that is down and out right now, the New York Jets, they were 4-13 and last year. Their head coach is Robert Sala. He's going into his second year as head coach. The general manager is Joe Douglas. He has been in that role since 2019. Last year, the Jets were 25th in total offense, 32 in total defense. The Jets overview for me, Luca, I'm surprised because I came into this thinking, okay, we know Miami can be decent. If they have a good quarterback, there could be a problem. The Patriots are the Patriots. They're probably going to be a tough out, not the most talented roster, but Belichick's going to find a way to make them be formidable. Those are the two teams that the Bills really have to worry about. And then the Jets are the Jets, and they're just going to roll over and die twice a year for the Bills. And then to borrow a phrase that we use a lot on this show, I started looking under the hood and I realized I like a lot about what the Jets have in place. I don't know what it's going to amount to in 2022, but going forward, I think the Jets are set up if a few things go their way to be a dangerous team in the landscape of the AFC. First and foremost, the thing that needs to go their way is their second year quarterback, Zach Wilson. Um, unlike Tua and to a different extent, Matt Jones, I think Matt Jones is more talented than Tua. Zach Wilson has a world of talent. He's mobile. He has an absolute cannon for an arm. He can throw on the run. He has those freakish athletic traits that you look for to be that difference making quarterback. But last year was a borderline disaster for him. And he really took his lumps his rookie year. But if Mac Jones can take that step in year number two, What's around him are, I would almost equate them to, I don't want to say lotto tickets, but chance plays, dice rolls of players that realistically could be good enough that the Jets could amount to something decent. Let's take a look at the roster now. Um, when you look at things that they're looking at at training camp, the biggest thing they have going on right now is a battle at left tackle between former first round pick Makai Becton and free agent signee from last year, George Fant. Fant was a guy that played for Becton last year and surprised everybody and played actually really well at left tackle. And reading the tea leaves of the Jets this um, doing some research for this show, it sounds like George Fant has the inside track to the left, left tackle position. And whoever doesn't get the left tackle would then default over to the right tackle position. And that should give the Jets two good bookends, assuming Becton can keep his weight down and play with the consistency we saw for the better part of his rookie year. Um, the Jets should have a strong 
bookend tackle situation. The Jets offseason also saw them keep wide receiver Braxton Berrios, who is a very good kick returner, did some nice things out of the slot last year. They signed Jordan Whitehead to beef up their secondary and start next to LaMarcus Joyner. They brought in Lakin Tomlinson from San Francisco to start at left guard. Elijah Vera Tucker, the excellent rookie from last year, is going to go to right guard. DJ Reed from Seattle is another solid cornerback that they brought in. And they obviously drafted Sauce Gardner in the draft. Speaking of the draft, Luca, no team has had more picks in the last two drafts than the New York Jets. And while they don't have a laundry list of proven great players, they have some names that wouldn't surprise anybody if they amounted to something good, if not great. I mentioned Sauce Gardner. They also got Garrett Wilson this year in the draft with a 10th pick. Later in the first round, they got Jermaine Johnson at defensive end that a lot of people thought could go much, much higher in the draft. In, in fact, in our mock draft, we had the Jets taking Jermaine Johnson 10th overall. And then in the second round, they got a running back, Brees Hall, that we sat here and talked about for weeks that the Bills could and should take with their first round pick. So by our measures, the Jets got Jermaine Johnson, Sauce Gardner, Garrett Wilson, Brees Hall, four, four first round quality players in that draft. The previous draft, they took Zach Wilson with their first pick. They took Elijah Vera Tucker. They got Elijah Moore at the top of the second round. And then in the fourth round, they took Michael Carter running back, who was very good for them last year. All of this is to say, while the Jets are not a finished product by any means, they are a team that has been building through the draft for years. They got a home run, absolute struck the lotto with their Jamal Adams trade with the Seahawks that has just paid dividends time and time again over and over again as as they have parlayed those picks into more picks and more picks, they have injected this roster with some very, very, very exciting, high-end, young, talented players. And when you look at this roster, Luca, if Zach Wilson can take a leap this year, I don't see a real reason why the Jets can't be on par with the likes of Miami and New England in this division. I just laid out a bunch there on the Jets. I think there's obviously a reason for concern. They went 4-13 and for a reason. But when you look around this roster, you see where they have potential for some players to grow. I think while the Jets are probably going to be a 500 or below team in 2022, I would put my money right now on the Jets being the team of these three teams that we fear most going into 2023 if Zach Wilson can take that Josh Allen second-year step of shaky rookie to competent starter like Josh Josh Allen was in 2019. If Zach Wilson can just become competent this year, I would be thinking, uh-oh, he went from bad to competent, and then come 2023, maybe he goes from competent to very, very good. Do you agree with me that the Jets are maybe on a pace to become that scariest team in our division in the not-so-distant future? Their trajectory is at the highest. Um, and what I mean by that is, yes, I, I ultimately do agree with you. I think they are very raw in their, but they're raw in a youthful way. Um, as you pointed out, they, they're a team that, yes, if, if Zach Wilson, that dog in him really gets going, I cannot believe you forgot to bring up how much of a dog Zach Wilson. I would say I didn't forget it. I just wasn't sure how to, how to just Get it He's in a there. dog. I mean, CJ Uzuma showed up to camp with him on a on a Time Magazine Man of the Year legendary like, picture. It was awesome. Like 
Zach Wilson has earned the respect of a locker room in the best way or greatest way possible. He's a dog, all right? And if he can just keep progressing forward, as you brought up, and they've started to surround him with a lot of youth and talent, and there's a lot of skill out there, both sides of the ball, if if everyone can start figuring it out now, right? And this year, as you said, they're probably going to be a below 500 team. I actually funny enough, project them to not really improve in the win-loss column this year compared to the last. But there's a reason for it, and it's not because the roster is bad and the players are bad. It's just the unfortunate reality is their schedule is tougher. And when your youth is there and they're raw and trying to figure it out, and it's basically the entire core of your team, when you're young comes growing pains. And growing pains don't generally lead to wins most of the time. Now, if it's a perfect storm, maybe they do get wins, and it wouldn't be crazy to think that that's going to happen. I mean, the talent is there with Sauce Gardner, Jermaine Johnson, Garrett Wilson, Brees Hall. I mean, bringing in Jordan Whitehead and LaMarcus Joyner, as you brought up, all these things, right? They could do stuff where maybe maybe they figure it out faster than you would expect. It's just ultimately, I think you're going to have to go through growing pains. There's a there's a philosophy in, you know, you got to figure it out and hopefully you figure it out sooner than later. But generally, when you're trying to figure it out, it's not like instant success comes. So I don't necessarily feel like this will be a year where they're seeing the success or growth potentially even in the win loss column, but it will be apparent on the field every week. I do believe that this is a team and I'm with you. When you really look at it, you're like, man, come 2023 and 2024 and years to come, if you look at the Patriots, you look at the Dolphins, and you look at the Jets, the one that could really just keep projecting up and keep threatening the Bills year in, year out could be these Jets. If Zach Wilson really can believe it, and I still believe in Zach Wilson, I am still a believer in that. He just needs to work on his game and becoming a pro and just figuring the quarterback position out. Again, I said it just previously. It's the hardest position in all professional sports. It's just there's a lot that has to go on. It takes time to learn. He has the raw talent to make it work. He just needs to figure it out and learn it. If he can do that with Garrett Wilson, Elijah Moore, and you know Braxton Berrios, you even brought out very solid slot kind of guy, shifty guy. You know the offensive line is there to have a very good potential to it. Uh, Uzuma, I think, is a great add. Um, I think that brings a nice kind of like safety blanket to their tight end position. Brees Hall, as you brought up, and then have a defense as well that is very solid with Salah just figuring it out and running the scheme that he has shown to have great success with in previous teams. This could be a very, very scary team in the future. We're not talking this season, but in the future, this is a team that could really bloom and create problems for the Bills in years to come. It's not going to be this year. They're not going to be a team that really threatens too, too much. I really do believe they're going to kind of not see the success in the win-loss. I'll say it again, but they're a team that... So even with the Bills playing, you know, they're a team that can put it all together faster than you know expected and it wouldn't surprise me i just think ultimately not having that experience in a lot of different positions where that skill is will be the inevitable downfall of the win turning into a loss but yeah 2023 will be a very very interesting year if zach wilson is at least competent 
and understanding how to operate you know, a base level NFL offense and know what he's seeing across from him on the defensive side and things like that. Like he doesn't need to dissect it. He doesn't need to start creating things pre-snap and all that kind of crap, right? We're not saying that. It's just if he can understand when he lines up over center or lines up behind center and shot and he sees what he sees across from him and he knows what he's got in him and he knows where to go with the ball, we'll say majority of the time and things of that nature, that's an improvement from last year and you would expect it to keep growing come 2023. So yeah, it's a fascinating team. It's an exciting team. If you're a Jets fan, to be honest, it's almost like this is a year for the Jets where they can be excited about their team and not really have to worry about win loss and stuff. They just want to see the excitement actually pay off. It's kind of like what, you know, to kind of give it a homey feel here. It's kind of what you have with the Sabres in the NHL this year. All of a sudden, you have all these little exciting pieces that showed a glimpse, or at least obviously with the Jets, they really haven't been on the field. So this is not the case, but you saw a little tiny glimpse of what they could be at the end of last year, but the games didn't matter. Now you're excited going into a year to see what they can do when the games matter, but the expectation is not to make the playoffs and it's not to you know be above 500 and all that jazz. It's just you want to see what they can do and hopefully keep on that upward trajectory so that maybe in two years, three years, you can start threatening for those playoff spots and even potentially the division or whatever comes with it. Right. That's kind of where the Jets are this year. And it's kind of a fun, you know, stress free, if you want to call it time to be a Jets fan. Um, I think they have a lot of pieces that are raw and young and awesome and this could be a fun year to just sit back and enjoy week in and week out and just hopefully, I mean, not for us, but for them, at least they're hoping to see promise that then maybe could lead to them sniffing or trying to play around with over 500 God forsaken playoffs potentially with that team in 2023, 2024 and so on. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I'm with you. It's a it's an interesting team. It's definitely an interesting depth where they have a lot of young pieces that could and I mean realistically you expect to work out and pan out and be, you know, significant in the landscape that is the NFL. So it doesn't come without risk, right? Like the the very first thing is we both like Zach Wilson, his skill set, but him panning out as a quarterback is very, very far from a certainty. In fact, if you base it on how the first year went, you might even put the odds on it's not gonna work out. I still believe in him. If I were building a team today, I would take him certainly over to and probably over Mac Jones. Um, but there, there's also risk involved with, we mentioned Mackay Becton and George Fant that gives them some solid bookends, but you're relying on one Becton who hasn't always been available for various reasons, both injury and maturity reasons to be available, whether it's at right or left tackle, because they have almost nothing on their roster as far as backup tackles go. So they're going to need Makai Becton to be available for 16, 17 games this year, or else they're going to be in a world of trouble because I read today, you know who their third tackle is, Luca? Connor McDermott. Oh yeah, I saw that. That's and that is uh, scary. Rough. And then, you know, we mentioned some names, Jermaine Johnson, Sauce Gardner, Garrett Wilson, Brees Hall. These are names we all liked heading into the draft. We weren't as high on Garrett Wilson as others were, but we certainly recognize the fact that the draft media in general really loved him as a prospect, but you're putting players like this sauce Gardner, um, maybe not Jermaine Johnson as much because they do have a very deep D line room, but Garrett Wilson for sure. Brees Hall for sure. 
in a position where they have to step on the field and contribute right away, where you converse that with a team like the Bills, who have you know a much deeper roster than the Jets, Kyir Elam comes in, and if he's not ready to hit the ground running, it's fine. The Bills have Teron Johnson, Tredavious White, Dane Jackson. Like They're insulated there. They can bring him along at an appropriate pace instead of saying, hey, buddy, you got to play right away because we have nobody else. The, the Jets, it's either Sauce Gardner's ready to roll, or you throw Bryce Hall out there, who's just a very underwhelming athlete as far as cornerbacks go. Um, same thing with Garrett Wilson. Garrett Wilson, you're either ready to go, or we're talking about what Denzel Mims, who's probably not even going to make the team. It'd probably be Corey Davis, Elijah Moore, and um, I guess Braxton Berrios be out there. That's not bad. They have a deep wide receiver group. Um, Jermaine Johnson, the guy we really liked. Um, Elijah Moore coming off of a strong year last year, but obviously missed some time with injuries. There's a lot of assuming that these players are going to hit their potential, which is always dangerous to do when you're talking about young players. But I go back to the point of the quarterback. With the Dolphins, it's all good except for the quarterback. To me, the Jets, it's not nearly as solid and proven as what the Dolphins have. There's a lot of question marks there. There's a lot of draft pick investment that we haven't quite made a decision on there. But man, if the quarterback hits, this team could be a lot of fun. I don't rule out the possibility that they could compete for a seventh seed even this year, depending on the kind of leap that Zach Wilson takes. Just imagine a world where Zach Wilson takes a leap and becomes, say, a top 16 quarterback. So, you know, that's a leap. That's a big leap based on what we saw last year. But you're talking about a top 16 quarterback with a wide receiver group of Garrett Wilson, Elijah Moore, and Corey Davis, running backs of Brees Hall and Michael Carter, um, an offensive line that is much improved with Beckin and Fant and Elijah Vera Tucker and Lakin Tomlinson, a defense led by Robert Sala with whatever Sauce Gardner is his rookie year opposite of DJ Reed. You have the two veteran safeties we mentioned that we like in, in Whitehead and Joyner. And then that deep, deep D-line room I could see a scenario. Now, this is like, this is best case scenario, right? This is like all the lotto ticket, all the flips of the coin go in your favor. Heads, 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 heads. But this this scenario, if Zach Wilson is good, I think, I don't want to say the sky is the limit for the Jets this year because I don't think they're a Super Bowl roster, but I don't think the Jets fans need to be like, well, if if Zach Wilson's great, then cool. Like, I don't care what our record is. We know Zach Wilson's great. No, I think if Zach Wilson is good to great, like, you should expect your team to make the playoffs because I think that the roster has a chance to be good enough to do that. And that's all you want. Um, Connor Hughes, who covers the Jets, does an excellent job, made a really good point. He said that he has covered the Jets. I, I can't remember how long he said he's covered them for, but this is this is the first time ever covering the Jets where he's gone into a training camp where it didn't feel like the Jets were playing for next year, where it was, okay, this year's team is cool, but they're really setting up to be good next year. And that's like how it was through every Darnold reign. Maybe he said outside of the year where um, the Jets signed Le'Veon Bell, CJ Mosley, and Sam Darnold was going into a second year. It felt like the Jets were really ramped up for a big year that year. And that's the year that Sam Darnold got mono. They lost that heartbreaker for them opening day loss to the Bills. And then Darnold got mono and their season just went down the tubes. Um, he said, this is the first year where it feels like the jets actually have an eye on this year. And that's refreshing. I hope for the jets fans sake, you know, we have one that's close near and dear to our heart flip. Um, I would like to see the jets turn it around. It's no fun to root for a miserable football team. And from a bills fan stake, you know, 
to me, the Dolphins and the Patriots feel like solid to good teams that are going to have a ceiling of how good they can be based on inferior quarterback play that's going to always be a notch below elite. I don't think Tua and Mac Jones are in the same conversation. I would much rather have Mac Jones than Tua, but neither one of those guys to me are going to be top 10 quarterbacks. The Jets have a guy that I think has a path to being a top 10 quarterback in his career with his skill set. He's just nowhere near close to that yet, but watching him grow around this young roster is going to be very interesting and could be a lot of fun for Jets fans. All right, Luca, we've broken down the Jets. We've broken down the Patriots. We've broken down the Dolphins. The Bills obviously play six games against these teams. Um, What to you would be an acceptable record in AFC East games? Obviously, the Bills are going to be favored to win all of these games, barring some sort of injury situation. Um, I think I'll just tell you, I, I, I feel like you're going to come on a little stronger than me. I think the floor is four and two, and I think anything less than five and one will probably feel like a disappointment. Oh, the floor is five and one. Oh my God. The expectation is six and oh, I expect a perfect division record out of this. Ultimately, this is, this is kind of how I paint the picture here. Look, the bills are the best team in the NFL right now. Best roster, best team, top to bottom as an organization, they are the best team in the NFL. Period. At full health, I would expect them to be favored against anyone. Then you start to go into the Bucks. And I'm talking NFL obviously. You know what? Let's do it. Let's just do AFC. Then you're talking like Kansas City, um the Chargers, uh, let's go. I'm big on the Raiders this year. Um, we haven't had a chance to b- talk about that division since we don't play them, fortunately. Um, you know, things of that nature. So that's three there. Let's see here. I think I got, uh, you know, the, the AFC West as a whole is just better. Um, the Bengals, the, and there's kind of a theme here, Bengals, the Ravens, the Colts, all these teams. I would say are better and potentially even somewhat significantly better than anyone else in our division. Obviously I'm not including us here. So everyone else in our division, I just named, what is that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven teams right there. So you're telling me that basically everyone else in our division at best is a borderline playoff team. Because if I'm saying we're the best team in the NFL, I say we're a one seed that leaves six spots. If I name seven teams there, if I'm doing my math right, because I'm doing this really quick here, they're not playoff teams or they're trying to compete to be borderline playoff teams. And ultimately, I don't really expect them to maybe the Patriots or Dolphins, one of those two sneak in there because the AFC West beats themselves up, whatever it may be because of that. And then also the Patriots took that step down and then we talked about the issues with two and all that there's glaring issues or question marks or whatever you want to call it with all these three teams and we are that significantly higher than them i mean we should realistically be favored by at least i'll say five points in every game no matter where against all three of these teams if you are favored by five or more by all if you're favored by five points on the road versus any team that means you're basically a touchdown favorite or more 
depending on how you look at it. The classic thought is you give three points to the home team. And if it's a, you know, say the home team's the three point favorite, it's a coin flip, right? If you're then a fav- five point favorite on the road, you should be a touchdown favorite in my mind. You better be winning all these games. Your floor is 5-1 because maybe you slip up in Miami early in the season, or maybe you slip up in New England because Belichick just outcoached you, whatever it may be, right? Just someone, you lost that game though. The Bills will not be outplayed from top to bottom. They will just lose that game. Whether it's Belichick just outclassed McDermott, whatever it may be, yes, maybe at certain facets they played better or coached better. But ultimately, the Bills lost. It wasn't the team winning. I just don't see a world where five and one isn't the floor. You know, four and two, as you put it, I can respect it, but four and two is not the floor. Five and one is the floor. I will not accept anything less, and I will not accept anything less than six and oh in this division. I expect the Bills to go into every one of those games. And by the way, the way it breaks down on the schedule, too, favors, in my opinion, the Bills in every single one of those matchups. Every single one. I mean, I feel bad for the Jets that their first game against the Bills comes right after a big game against the Packers, because no matter what happens in that game, the Bills are going to absolutely pound the Jets, because at that point in the season, after playing a very tough start, they are going to be ripe to just kind of explode on someone. And unfortunately for the Jets, that's them. So things like that and the Miami early on and Josh Allen is Miami's daddy. Let's never forget that. And then they have, Miami has to come to Buffalo late in the season. And then they get the Patriots late in the season twice. Things of that nature. I fully expect the Bills to go 6-0. and 5-1 is an absolute floor because, yes, it's the NFL. Any given Sunday, someone can win. You know, Unexpected losses happen, such of that nature. So I will give them one. That is my floor. I will accept nothing less. I love your confidence. I think the bills will be favored in all these games. We didn't mention that if the bills do lose a game to the dolphins, it'll be borderline historic because in the last seven meetings against the dolphins, the bills have won all seven games with an average point differential of 20 points per game. The thing is, I think Miami's aware of that too. I feel like they're circling that week three game as their super bowl. Um, that game does make me a little bit nervous but at the same time, the Bills had the better team, the better quarterback. They had the better quarterback in all of these matchups, and it's not really close. So I think the Bills should, should win all of these games. I think realistically, the way the NFL works, it'll probably be, um, you know, five and one. It's fine. Four and two to me would be very disappointing, um, but let's see how the rest of the schedule shakes out. But anyway, Luca, this was a look at the AFC East rivals in our division. I don't think it's going to be a cakewalk. I do think all these teams do have a certain path to success that could lead into the playoffs. But overall, I don't think either one of us have any real fear that the Bills are in danger of not winning that AFC East championship for a third year in a row. And that will bring us to the end of our rivals watch series, but it is certainly not the end of our podcast because training camp is just underway and we will be back next week with all new topics to talk about. I'm sure things will happen throughout the practices that we're going to get into. We're going to start becoming very close to the first preseason game. Luca and I are going to have thoughts on players that are standing out and I may have a Josh Allen conversation. I want to bring to Luca to have a, a larger conversation about 
does he need to improve and what would that improvement look like we're going to get into all of that next week obviously keeping our ears to the ground of all bills news and league-wide news and until that time we will see you next time on bills chat a pro football podcast Thanks again for listening to this episode of Bills Chat, a pro football podcast. Follow us on Twitter if you're not already, at Bills Chat Pod. And also be sure to subscribe to this channel on whatever platform it is you choose to spend your time listening to us every week. Look forward to talking to you all again next time.